going to be in Luke chapter 6 this morning. Luke chapter 6. Actually going to start in Proverbs, but we'll get out of there pretty quick. So you can open up to Luke chapter 6. In our series, Jesus for Everyone, walking our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. We're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Plain uh, and, and learning so much about what, what Jesus has to teach us, what the wisdom he gives us uh, that is, as it always seems to be with Jesus, uh, a, a we've got a small section of text today, but it packs a uh, punch. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Simple enough verse, the wisdom of the book of Proverbs is in every verse. The hard part is that the wisdom of Proverbs is often lost on us. They say that youth is wasted on the young, which the older I get, the more true that statement becomes. But uh, they say youth is wasted on the young, but oftentimes wisdom is wasted on fools. Uh, And this verse is undoubtedly wise But when we take this verse that says a soft answer turns away wrath and a harsh word stirs up anger, when we take this verse, we try to, in our best moments, force ourselves to apply this verse. You read Proverbs 15, 1, and our application typically is that we will take this and we will say, all right, so if, if, if a soft answer turns away wrath and a harsh word turns up anger, I need to learn to control my temper. I need to learn to kind of back off a little bit, not be so harsh. This, this may just be me preaching myself. This may be the way I apply this verse, but this is kind of how it works for me. I need to figure out how to be a kinder person, especially to uh, my kids. I, this is what I need to do. And so what it, what it looks like is that whenever my kids do something dumb that frustrates me to no end, I have to be able to bite my tongue, right? And so depending on how dumb it is or for how long they've been doing the dumb thing uh, depends on what my reaction is. Is it, oh, come on, man, seriously? Or is it, I've got to take a drive and I'm going to be back in a few hours. I might get a hotel room and I'll be back after that so that I can calm down just a little bit, right? So that I cannot uh, lash out and, 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 and deliver with my tongue harsh words. So if I want to apply this verse... I have to figure out some way to back off of what is in my mouth and what I want to say. And again, these are my best moments, which my kids would tell you I'm not often in, right? My, my normal moments is like it just, bleh, like it's just there. And then I'm like, oh, I got to go apologize later. That's not good. Um, but if I, if I do manage to like bite my tongue, go to the other room, step outside, take a drive, whatever it is, and I manage not to let that anger get the, the, the best of me, then what happens after that often is I will self-righteously pat myself on the back and think how good of a Christian I was that I was able to apply that proverb. I was able to kind of will myself to apply the wisdom of the proverb. I have in that moment, by sheer force of will and discipline, made myself a better person, a better Christian, and a person God could be proud of. That's generally what my mindset is. I wouldn't articulate it that way. I'm far too spiritual for that. But that's, that's what I'm thinking in my heart. That's what I'm thinking uh, whenever I, I, I am able to do that. Uh, the problem is that none of those things are actually true. I'm not actually a better Christian when I do that. I'm not actually uh, making myself uh, someone God can be proud of. Because the proverb isn't primarily about self-discipline. 
It's about something far, far deeper than that. And this morning, I'm going to let Jesus show us what that proverb is actually about. Like I said, Luke chapter 6, in the middle of the sermon on the plane, we've got two more uh, messages that we're going to spend some time in the sermon. We'll look at over the course of the next couple of weeks. Uh, but in just three verses this morning, Jesus is going to give us a teaching that seems very simple on its surface, but has a profound impact, if you will let it. He's given the disciples the blessings and the woes that kind of kicked off the sermon. This is right smack in the middle of chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles open, and kind of begins the sermon. And then the rest of chapter 6 is an application of those blessings and woes, of those things that Jesus says, you're happy if you are this way, and you are without hope or without comfort if you are this way. This is what we talked about. And so the rest of chapter 6 is how do you live out the, 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 the happiness that we are blessed with, and how do we make sure that we don't end up being someone that Jesus would say, woe to you. So what Jesus is doing, if you'll remember, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, is he's resetting our perspective in this sermon, where our life is not rooted so much in this world as it is another. The, the reminder that this world is not all that there is. And so this teaching is going to push us on that perspective. It's going to harshly challenge us to have the right perspective if we are going to live according to the way that Jesus has tasked for us. So let's just look at this, the, the verses here and then we'll, we'll, do, we'll get to work a little bit. Luke chapter 6 verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. That's it. That is our section for the morning. Again, simple in its wording, profound in its impact. You don't need a lot of exegesis from me here. You don't need me to tell you the Greek of any of these words. You don't need me to kind of tease out a few different things. It is there for us to read, very simple, very clear. Verse 43 and 44 are are simple. You can't get apples out of an orange tree. That's basically what it is saying there. An apple tree will give you apples. That is, the, that is the simple wisdom Jesus gives us there. Verse 45 tells you that if you want to know what kind of tree you are, then just look at your fruit and you will know what kind of tree you are. What are you producing? Kind produces kind. Again, nothing fancy here. No, no tricks, no historical context needed here. Uh, what you see is what you get. So the question immediately becomes then, What do we do with this? Can I just stand up here? I mean, I I probably could just stand up here and read this and then send you guys uh, off to uh, whatever dinner you need to go to, whatever lunch you need to have. Uh, But I think there's something that we can, that that, that we need to dig, dig into just a little bit here because this goes beyond just the surface application of this uh, and, and really will get into our hearts. What does it teach us about ourselves? I think the answer to that question is partially in what Jesus says, and it's partially in what Jesus doesn't say as he's teaching this. 
I love sports. I don't know how many of you guys are big sports fans. I love sports. As I've gotten older, I have mellowed out a little bit. My mood is not quite as drastically affected as it was whenever I was younger. I don't hang on every pitch. I don't pout after every snap and every play that doesn't go my team's way. But I still love sports. There's almost nothing like it left in our World. I could talk all day long about how much I love sports, and I know for many of you that would be your key to check out and be like, I'm done here. Because you can talk all day you want all day long about how much you love sports, but it's not going to move the needle at all for me because I hate sports. I understand that there's a lot of you that are like that, but just hang with me here. This is actually something that we can all track with here. This is not a sports analogy on Mother's Day that we're not gonna do that, all right? I just want you to hang with me here and we'll We'll see this. And, and, and part of what uh, I, I love about sports, uh, one of the aspects that I love about it is that when it's done at its highest level, sports is one of the few places in our world that is truly a meritocracy. In other words, it is one of the few places in the world where the best are the ones that, that, that get to play. The best are the ones that get uh, rewarded for a variety of, of, of reasons, some of them good and some of them not. Uh, our world doesn't really work on that level, but it's still true in sports. It doesn't matter if you're a fan favorite. It doesn't matter if you're the coach's kid. It doesn't matter if you're a Hall of Famer. The bottom line is, if you aren't good enough, you won't play. Now, again, this is at the highest level. I'm sure you all have got like your AAU stories telling me about, well, they had this one kid and they were given this money and I get it. But I'm talking about like at the highest level, this is how this works, right? The best are the ones that will see uh, the field. The guy or the girl that plays is the best. Now, with that, what that means is that in the sports world comes a work ethic and a commitment that you will seldom see matched outside of the sporting world. There is a work ethic that is, that is bred into athletes at some point where, where you have to, to kind of get after it or you will get left behind. Athletes know that if they want to be the next guy up, then chances are they're going to have to beat the next guy. They're going to have to outwork that person. That's the only path to victory. It's the only path to success. You have to find an edge in order to win. And for most, that is going to be to get out there and work. Now, let me give you an example. And this isn't so much about beating out the next person so much as it is the nature of what sports can do and how it can push you. Back in 2005, 2006, which I realize now seems like a long time ago, when I was thinking up like this analogy and working through this, I was like, that was just a few years ago. I realized that was a while ago. Uh, but back in 2005, 2006, uh, Emily... Uh, my wife and a couple of her friends went on what she thought was just going to be a casual Sunday afternoon uh, walk. Turns out that one of the friends that she was uh, going with uh, was actually the coach for the cross-country high school team and had a different idea of what a walk was. Uh, and so they got out there and started walking, and uh, evidently it was at a very, very fast pace. And they ended up going something like four or five miles on this uh, walk I think Emily says it was more aggressive than she thought it was going to be. Uh, they walked several miles, several, and Emily made it back to our apartment. I had just been kind of hanging out that afternoon. Emily made it back to our apartment. She came in there, and she was absolutely smoked. She was sweating. She was like, I don't know what just happened. I thought we were going for a walk, and I am absolutely uh, done. 
uh, I, being the, the, uh, the, the sympathetic husband, made fun of her, and I was like, it was a walk, right? Like, you just went on a walk. She's like, no, but it was, it was a different kind of a walk. I'm like, but it's still a walk. Like, it's not, like, really, like, you're that tired from, from, from this walk. But what we didn't know at the time is that that walk would be a catalyst for her that would drastically change uh, a, a lot of different things in her life because something happened that challenged her in that walk. Over the course of the next few years, the walks changed into runs. One lap around the track became two, and then one mile became a 5K, and then a 5K became a half marathon. And then back in 2010, so almost a year to the day after Isaiah was born, uh, Emily r- ran her first ever marathon. She went from being someone who, could, who couldn't hang with somebody on a walk to somebody who traveled to Ohio, went to Columbus, Ohio, and ran in uh, this marathon. So how did she go from being absolutely smoked by her friends on a walk to running a marathon? One way, and I watched her, sheer force of will. That was it. She'd be the first to tell you that she's, not, she's never done anything athletic. She's never been the athletic type. She, she didn't know what it meant to go out and run this. We had no idea how long a 5K was. Like, we're looking up, what is that? We're trying to figure out all those different things. It was nothing but, but, but hard work. Hot days, the middle of the summer training, whenever it's 95 degrees outside, and she's out running 15, mile, uh, 15 miles in order to prepare herself for her Marathon, early mornings, late nights. Again, this is all within a year after our son was born. And so uh, while she's, while she's uh, dealing with, with caring for a child and nursing and all that stuff, she's also fitting in her runs and going and doing all these things. She ran her tail off. She was no marathoner. She would be the first to tell you that. But she made herself one. In sports, that kind of mindset can, 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 can develop and, and kind of take root in you. Now, for some of you, it's not sports where that develops. That, that kind of develops in the classroom or it develops in a, a few different places. But sports is the place where I know it the most, the most familiar, where, where like hard work just kind of becomes part of who you are. It just kind of becomes part of who you are. And the mindset gets in there that if you work hard enough, you can do anything. The only thing that is stopping you from achieving your goals is your level of effort. Many a coach has given that speech at the beginning of a season or in an off season. Many a coach has laid that out there. That's true in sports. And honestly, up until probably the last generation of Americans, or this has been true of America in general. That hard work is what what kind of marked us, that we were a people that worked hard. It was one of the distinguishing marks of being an American. We believed in the value and the necessity of hard work. Now, sadly, that is very clearly diminishing within our culture. Our culture doesn't value it at quite the level that it was. But don't get me wrong, hard work will still get you very, very far. Employers still want somebody that will work hard. Hard work will still get you a long way in the classroom, and it will still get you a long way on the athletic field. This work ethic is a large part, in large part what made America. It gave us our backbone. It gave us our drive. And then what we did is we took it and we applied it on multiple levels across radically different environments. And while that, that, that work ethic is profoundly valuable in some environments, it also creates a lot of problems. Now, I'll let some of the sociologists 
work on, on, on some of the social problems that it can create. But I'm a pastor, and what I want us to see this morning is that that mindset of having a great work ethic has a fundamental flaw in our faith. And Jesus seeks in this one little passage to undermine the ethic of hard work. And if you're like, wait a minute, what, what are you saying, Pastor? Are you really saying what I think you're saying? Just hang with me on this one. In this little passage, Jesus will undermine what, what hard work so often comes to mean in our faith. You see, when Jesus says a fig tree produces figs, He, in one simple analogy, undercuts the one thing that for so many of us have grown to believe is the essence of our faith. For so many of us, we have grown to believe that the definition of being a Christian, that the the definition of of, of who we are, the key ingredient, is, is the level of work that we put in. I'll show you this here in just a second. You say, how does he do that? He doesn't say hard work is bad when he says a fig tree produces fig. And you're right, he, he doesn't. But what he does say is that hard work is irrelevant. I don't know if you see that there. But he says hard work is, in, is irrelevant. Why? Because our faith isn't built on how hard we work. Now for some of you, that is a revolutionary statement. For some of you, that doesn't, compu- that doesn't compute with your brand of Christianity that you've known your whole life. But this is what Jesus says. Our faith isn't built on how hard we work. An apple tree cannot work hard enough to produce oranges. It can't. There's, it, it cannot work hard enough to produce something else. We can't work hard enough to make ourselves Christians. Even good Christians. Our Christian faith is rooted in our nature. If you are a Christian, it is your nature that you are Christian. It is who you are. An orange tree can't work hard enough to make apples. It will always, it will always make oranges. That's the way it is. A fig tree can't just believe in itself. And then all of a sudden, start producing something else. Effort is irrelevant to reality. A bush will bear the fruit that is consistent with its nature. And no amount of effort will change that. Let me say that again. A a bush or a tree will bear the fruit that is consistent with its nature. And no amount of effort will change that. And so it is with us. The fruit we bear as Christians is contingent upon our nature. Or to put it another way, the way that Jesus does in verse 45 of chapter 6, if you want to see it there, what we, drew, what, we, what we do is driven by what we treasure. I love the way that this is worded. It's not just that, that what is in us will eventually come out. This would be the typical application of uh, this verse, if, if, if that's the case, then, then this message and what Jesus says is exclusively about what we put in our hearts and our minds will define us. Garbage in equals garbage out. What Jesus says is that what comes out of us isn't just about what we put in, but about what stays in, what we keep inside of us, what we choose to value. That will be what eventually comes to define us. This is Jesus' point. 
If you value the things of this world, then the things of this world will be what come to define you. And if you'll remember back at the beginning of, of uh, the middle of chapter 6, the beginning of this sermon on the plane, what did Jesus say about that? He said, woe to you if you have your fill of this world, for you will be empty in the next. What you value, what you treasure, what you most hold dear to who you are, that is what will eventually come out of you and define you. So let's get back to this idea of working hard. Let's get back to the, this work ethic. For many of us, we have been taught that the essence of our faith is not about what we value, but about the things that we do. We get the formula completely wrong. We have the right ingredients, but, but we get the math formula, formula com, completely wrong. We get it backwards. What we say is that we work hard, we discipline ourselves, and that, that, that who we are flows from that discipline, right? Does that equation make sense to you? Who, what we are flows out of what we do and the, the, the discipline that we are. The problem is that is not how it works. That's how it works in running, right? If you discipline yourself to run, you become a runner, that's how that works. The, the, the discipline comes first, first, the identity comes later. But that's not how it works in Christianity. Jesus tells us that it works differently than that when it comes to our faith. What Jesus says is that the river flows in a completely opposite direction. That who we are will ultimately determine how we act. Do you see the difference in those two things? Our words, our actions don't make us, but they flow from us. They flow from who we are. And getting those two things crossed up creates so many problems. Let me tell you why this is so important. Because if our words make us, then we can make ourselves good Christians. We can make Jesus love us. We can force God's hand to want us. The problem is, if we can make ourselves good, then we have no need for God. If we can be good enough, then what do we need Him for? In fact, we can convince ourselves that we don't need God at all, and He actually needs us. After all, the best team gets the best players, right? And if you've disciplined yourself to be a good enough player, why wouldn't God want you on the team? Now, you might be like, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, you may not be the star quarterback. You can be like a, you know, like a tight end or something like that. No, no, no. This is the thing. This is what we convince ourselves, is that we've made ourselves good enough that God would want us. And then what kind of person does that make us? It makes us a person that feels that we can demand that kind of work out of everyone else. Right? This is, this is the role of the coach, we're the coach that can't figure out why no one else wants to work all of the time. If we can do it, then why can't they? If we can do it, then why can't they? If we're strong enough and disciplined enough to get out and to run the miles to make ourselves a marathon, to, to, to do all the right things to make ourselves a good Christian, then why can't you do the same thing? Why can't you make yourself into a better Christian? That's how this works. And what kind of person does that make us?
if it's just a force of will, if it's just about discipline, then we will have no grace for ourselves. And we sure won't have any grace for anyone else. The implications keep coming when we get this wrong. If external behavior is what makes me, and if it's what defines others around me, then Christians will leverage our lives and our behavior in order to manipulate external behavior. So, so follow me on this one. If what, if what you see on the outside is what comes first, then we will do anything to make that happen and to make that true. This is where abuse comes from. This is why spouses abuse one another. This is why a parent will abuse a child. This is where it comes from. This is why we have uh, all of these things. Because the goal is external compliance. And we will, we will utilize everything we can in order to get external compliance. Because that's the goal. That's all that really matters. Because if what you see on the outside is automatically indicative of what is going on on the inside, if, if it flows from good discipline, then equals a good person. If it flows in that way, all you have to do is whatever it takes to manipulate the outside. You don't actually need an apple tree for apples. You need to go to the store, buy apples, and then go staple them to the tree. Right? But Jesus says that's not how that works. That is not how the Christian faith works. For so long, the Christian faith worked, looked like this, that, that if the external is right, then the unspoken assumption is that the heart is right too. Jesus tells us that's not how it looks. Matthew 23, Jesus, Jesus says it this way. It's another interaction with the Pharisees, just this constant interaction with the Pharisees who had great-looking apples on their apple tree. And this is what he says. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The scribes and the Pharisees had the equation backwards, but man, they could work that equation with brutal efficiency. They kept the outside clean by force of will. And they demanded that everyone else do the same. But on the inside, what they treasured was their rules and themselves. And the fruit of that tree will send you to hell. But by force of will, they could keep the outside clean. They could keep the rules. They could keep the laws. They could make it all look good. But let me ask you the question. My assumption so far in this sermon has been, what does this do if you're good at this? But what does it do to us if we've got this equation wrong and we're really bad at this? And we acknowledge that we are bad at this. What happens to us? 
Well, for the most part, if you're not real good at keeping the rules and you show up and you go to church and you hear that it's all about keeping the rules and forcing kind of that outward uh, adherence to all the rules, then for the most part, what happens is people just walk away. They just walk away, saddened and despondent and feeling shame that while others may be able to make it happen, they just couldn't. They just couldn't do it. When Emily ran her marathon, I was running uh, quite a bit myself, regularly running 5Ks, probably three or four times a a week, but I never got beyond that. Every now and then I'd be running, I'd think, man, that'd be kind of cool to run a marathon. I want one of those stickers on my car too. Emily shouldn't be the only one to get the sticker on her car. I want a sticker on my car. Maybe I could do 26.2 miles too. And then I would finish my 5K and I would be like, nope. I'm good. That is not going to happen. That is not going to happen. I am not going to keep running. Uh, And let me tell you, I don't know if it is a lack of physical ability or mental strength on my part, but I can tell you this much. It was never going to happen. Uh, And Emily would keep being like, you should do it too, and then we could run the marathon together. And I'm like, I'll just cheer you on. I'm not interested in trying to be a marathoner. I don't know. I just knew I wasn't going to run 26.2 miles. And let me tell you something. Whenever your wife is like running laps around you uh, and and encouraging you to get out there and keep on running, that doesn't exactly light a fire under you. Like while while you're running and people are just like passing by you, it's not like, this is awesome. I'm so excited about this. Uh, Or when you stop and people just keep on going for like another hour, you're just like, that doesn't make, that doesn't make me be like, I could do that. If I believed in myself, it makes me think, there's no chance I'm going to do that, right? And this is how this works. It doesn't make you want to push. It makes you want to quit. It, it puts you in a place of shame. You, you, you hang your head in shame and walk away. You see, legalism is a powerful drug for those that can keep the rules. But it is a soul-crushing weight for those that, that can't quite seem to bear it. And this is why Jesus reverses the flow here. It's not what we do that defines us, but who we are by our nature. It's about what we value the most in our hearts. That defines us and then sets the course for our actions. The difference may be subtle, but it is profound. So what does all this mean? What, so what does this all what, what does all this mean? Does this mean that I just need to like I just need to give up that all this self-discipline, all these Bible verses that I've memorized, all these quiet times I've done my whole life, all the times that I have bit my tongue and not yelled at my kids because I thought I, thought I was doing something good? Have I just wasted my time in all of that? Do I just need to quit, stop trying? How do we apply a teaching that tells us trying is bad? That doesn't communicate at all to us, does it? doesn't make any sense at all. Well, for, store, for, for starters, trying is not all bad. And we'll, we'll see that here in just a second. But the, the, the other thing is we've got to change what our goal is in the first place. We have to move from external to internal goals. Let's go back to our proverb. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The goal here is not that we just bite our lip. It's that we change our hearts. 
We don't want to just be the person that doesn't yell when we are pressed and when we are frustrated and when we are angry. We want to be the person that figures it out and that comes with gentleness to help and to care. This is a fundamentally different posture that we take towards others. And that comes with a change in heart. So that whenever that that action happens that frustrates you, your immediate reaction isn't, I'm angry at you. The immediate reaction then becomes something else that kind of bubbles up from who you are. And it is, how do I care in this moment? How do I do the right thing? It doesn't mean that, listen, I'm, I'm not talking about how how we discipline and saying that we don't discipline or anything like that. What I'm saying is, what comes out of our hearts in that moment? Is it anger or care? It's not just about external adherence to the rules, but that the rules aren't even really a consideration because our hearts never take us to that place. And so the goal here is that that our hearts produce the right kind of fruit because that is by nature who we are. I don't have to worry about, you know, if if I go and plant an an apple orchard, I I don't have to worry that I'm going to go out there and get figs and be like, what do I do with these? I don't eat figs. I eat apples. I don't have to worry that when I go, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to be like, follow the rules, apple trees. They will produce apples. That's what they do. And so it is with our hearts. When our hearts are transformed, when our hearts are made into something new, we don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to break the rules and where are the rules at. We produce what comes out of us when our hearts are changed. You see, the goal isn't just that I figure out the, 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 the way to make sure something on the outside doesn't affect me or that I look good on the outside. It's that my heart responds in the appropriate way. Don't misunderstand, though. Hard work is a good thing so long as that river is flowing in the right direction. Some have made the hard work ethic the the primary, if not the only, defining characteristics of our faith. But Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 5, 22. You guys know this verse. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the tree... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against things there, are, uh, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Self-control is on that list. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And it is a fruit that comes from the essence of the tree, the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not saying the fruit of your hard work. It is not saying you get these things if you work hard enough to develop them. What it's saying is the Spirit will produce these in you so long as the Spirit is within you. Do you see how that works? Do you see how different that is than than if we get those things crossed and we say external comes first, internal comes later? One is about force of will. One is about complete surrender and giving it all over to to the Spirit and saying, Spirit, you produce this in me. It's completely different religion we're talking about here. A completely different faith. 
This is what the Pharisees had gotten so wrong and what Jesus is trying so hard to correct. You see, you don't produce self-control. It's a fruit that never came from you. Where did it come from? Do you remember, do you remember the Sermon on the Plain? you remember we talked about the, the very beginning, the blessings and the woes in, in 624? But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. We said that word consolation is the same word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. Same name given to the, the Holy Spirit in the Greek there. It means our help or our comfort. Jesus said the rich already had theirs. You, you who have produced your good reputation by your sheer force of will, you have your consolation. Your comfort will be in your works. And when you fail, you will have no comfort. But for us, the Spirit is our help, our comfort, our consolation. And it is the indwelling of that Spirit that enables us to change what we see, what we pursue, what we care about, what we treasure, as Jesus says in verse 45. He is our help. And He is the one that produces, by, pr- produces what by our nature we could not. Galatians 6.14 says it this way, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What he is saying there, what Paul says there, is what happens on the outside counts for nothing. It counts for nothing in my sanctification. I need the blood of Jesus. I need the cross. I will boast in nothing else but that. I'm not going to tell you how good I am. I'm not going to tell you about all the apples that I put up on my tree to make you think I'm an apple tree. What I'm going to tell you is that I need the cross because the cross is the only thing that changes my nature. The only way that we are made into new creations, the only way that we become new is as the Spirit changes our heart and the Spirit is brought to us through the blood of Jesus. That's it. That is our faith. That is what Christianity is about. It's not about being good enough or looking good enough or even saying that if I put enough good in, then enough good will come out. What it's about is saying that I need to be someone new. I need to be a new creation. And that comes through the blood of Jesus. It is the cross that changes our nature, that changes our hearts, and changes what we treasure. And nothing else can do that. Nothing. So when we say that Jesus is the only way to the Father, when we say that that trusting Jesus and the work of the Spirit is our only hope, that's not not words that, 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 that are simply like empty words for us. That's not just a creed. That is our desperate cry that we need to be made new. Because we cannot, by our nature, produce something that is not in our nature. And so our nature must be changed. This is Christianity. This is our faith. And it makes all the difference which one comes first. Let's pray. Father, this morning it is our confession that in our nature we do not love you. We do not seek you. We seek to justify ourselves. We seek to hide behind, uh, b- b- behind leaves and behind all kinds of different things to, 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 to get away from our sin. We seek to cover it up and we seek to put fake apples on trees that would never grow them. 
Father, it is our confession that we desperately need the Spirit to change who we are. And Father, we desperately desire, desperately desire that our actions would show that, that our actions would flow from the change of the Spirit, that we would have good actions, but those actions wouldn't come from our sheer force of will, but they would come as a fruit of the Spirit who dwells in us. Father, make that true of us today. Only you can do that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.